0: You're going to have to give while I talk. All right. Is that OK? Apparently not. All right. Let me uh, let me tell you, if you're here this week and you were here last week, you're going to notice something, and that is that I sound much better than I did last week. Uh, last week, it was uh, um, the worst I've ever sounded in my life that I'm convinced of that. And I appreciate you all sitting through that. But I went and saw an ear, nose and throat doctor this week because it was obvious Sunday something was going on. And after getting an ear lanced and drained, and steroids for my throat, I feel much, much better. Doesn't that sound fun? Like a fun Christmas activity? Ear lancing, alright? And so, um, but while I was there, I was reminded of uh, my ENT growing up. You know, ear, nose, and throat doctor, ENT. In Dyersburg, we had a, a, an ear, nose, and throat doctor named Dr. Freeman, who in Dyersburg, you didn't have pediatric ENTs and adult ENTs, you had... ENTs. Right. We didn't have every doctor served everybody. And you would go to Dr. Freeman. I remember two things about Dr. Freeman's uh, Dr. Freeman. I, I actually didn't mind going to see him because usually he was one of those doctors that when you walked into his office, you felt one way. And when you walked out, you were completely um, not completely, but you were a whole lot better. And the fir- the reason for that is the first thing I remember about Dr. Freeman. The first thing I remember about Dr. Freeman was kitty, kitty, kitty. Did y'all have kitty, kitty, kitty? You do know what that is? Okay, here, here's what kitty, kitty, kitty was. You would go in, stopped up nose, stuff all over the place, well, you know, all that. And he would, I'm not even sure this is legal or uh, advised medical practice, but he would put up one nostril, um, some kind of water that was kind of bubbling and warm. And he would shoot that into one nostril. And on the other side, he would have a vacuum coming out of the other nostril, and the whole time the water's going up into your nose, he would say, "Just repeat over and over and over again, kitty 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 kitty." And so you would do that, and you would walk out refreshed. All right, anybody ever done anything like that? There you go, Scott. It was a, it is weird, but helpful. All right. Um, here's the second thing I remember about Doctor Freeman. Doctor Freeman had the greatest waiting room magazine. In the history of the universe. And we were not a family that was wealthy enough to afford magazine subscriptions. We probably were. My parents just didn't get it for me. All right. But this magazine was always in his lobby. Right. How many of you have ever partaken of a highlights? Right. And you go into Dr. Freeman's. And here was the great thing about Dr. Freeman's. Like if you went to if you went to other places that lots of kids went to. Like these were always like filled out and worked, right? Because, you know, they'd say don't write, but you, you wrote it, them, right. But Dr. Freeman almost always had new ones that nobody had written in. And so you would open it up. And my favorite thing in the whole magazine was always to find a picture like this. Now, what do you do in this picture? What's, what are you supposed to do? Yes, find what doesn't belong or what's not right. And so, for instance, it says have a magical birthday. There's no why there. All right. Or the uh, apparently the uh, bunny is on strike or this girl has a full plate there. You were to go through and they tell you how many to find and you'd circle them all. And I always love the what's wrong with this picture. All right. So here's what I want to do real quickly. All right. I want to show you in just a moment another picture And I want us to find what's wrong with it, okay? And it won't be obvious at first, so you're going to have to think about it for a minute. But this is a, a, just pretend you're in Dr. Freeman's office about to have Kitty, Kitty, Kitty done, all right? And you've got to find what's wrong with this picture. Here it is. Bob Lloyd's got one coming out of the box, right? Here, here, I'll tell you two or three things, all right? And my whole goal here today is to destroy Christmas carols in your nativity sets at home, okay? Uh, Most of these you know, we just don't care about. But first of all... This scene is way too peaceful, right? Any of you ever um, um, been present for the birth of a child? Anybody? anybody how many of you ever been present for the birth of a child? All right, I, I've been present for four. Um, we have we have four children. I've been in the labor and delivery room for all four children. And um, words that I would not use to describe that entire experience is all is. Calm, right? Silent nights. It's never been silent in the delivery room. I don't know if any deliveries ever been silent. And you have to remember, this is pre-modern medicine. So this was a difficult experience physically. In fact, um, also it's not just that they're too calm. I mean, look at. I mean, I know this is precious. I know this is beautiful, but. Have you ever seen the baby wiggling in any of these things? You ever seen the baby wiggling? You ever seen the baby crying? Of course not, because away in the manger tells us that the cattle are lowing and the baby awakes. And that precious little baby Jesus, no crying. He makes I Don't you imagine that the baby's one day old, wakes up, there's a cow in his face and he's hungry. The baby is going to what? Scream, right? And of you've ever had a baby before that did not cry at all. I don't want to see your hand at all. All right. Like babies cry. That's what they do. And so it's a little too calm. And then Bob mentioned the wise men weren't there. We know they weren't there. Probably for months afterwards, maybe for a couple of years afterward, they didn't show up. And so if you want to be biblically accurate at your home, take your wise men and put them in a back room somewhere and the manger out in the main room, all right? And so say, they're not there yet. And then, like, eight months later, you bring them and put them out there, all right? Build a new little house for Mary and Joseph and put the wise men there. Like, people walk into your house in August. What are you doing with your Christmas stuff out? This is when the wise men showed up. I want to be biblically accurate, all right? It would have taken them several weeks. We're going to talk a little bit more um Um, about some of the stuff next week. But also, we don't know how many there were. We we obviously talk about three because of the three wise men. uh, Sounds like good with the three gifts. But we don't know a whole lot about these guys. Today, what I want to do is I want to kind of focus in on them whenever they showed up, whatever it was, middle of August, two years later, whenever it was, and ask the question, Okay, so what is the presence of the wise men in Matthew tell us about Jesus and about our lives. So if you've got your Bibles, turn to Matthew chapter 2, first book of the New Testament, um, the first book written about the life of Jesus, Matthew chapter 2. We're going to look today at the story of the wise men. We're going to talk about them briefly. And then we're also going to have a discussion about what that means for us. Matthew chapter 2, starting in verse 1. And it says, <coughs> now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Verse 3 says, When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all of Jerusalem with him. Now, here's the thing that is kind of interesting about this. It talks about Herod being troubled. It's a group of three guys or four guys or five guys or six or whatever come riding in on camels. And the attention of the city is turned to them. It's a huge group of people. They're all troubled because this entourage is coming in the question that I have when I read this kind of passage of Scripture, the questions that I ask are, first of all, I want to know who these guys are. They were the wise men. That's obvious from what we know in Scripture that they were what we would call astrologers. That's more than just a stargazing club. That's more than reading a horoscope in the local paper that makes it sound like your life is going to be wonderful no matter what's going on. Their title, the Magyoi, Makes us think that they were part of a ruling class of individuals. They were part of people that were in leadership in some way. And the question becomes, Okay, then, so how did they know? How did they put all this together? How did they get the star? And they saw the star come over here. And as they saw the star come over there, they thought, oh, there's a king of the Jews that has been born under that star. How did they get all of that together? The short answer is God told them, right? Somehow God let them know. But. I think there's a better understanding of how God told them when we consider where they're from. Because where they lived is where the Israelites had been exiled, where Daniel, you remember the story of Daniel, right? Had gone and had shown people the writings of Moses, had shown people the writings of the law, had told people about this. And throughout there were all of these prophecies. And these wise men, more than likely, had been reading about the prophecies of Daniel's God. One in particular that they may have seen that would have kind of piqued their interest comes um, when there was this enemy king of Israel by the name of Balak. He became afraid of the Israelites and he decided, you know what, I think I'm going to do something about that. And so he wanted to hire a prophet to curse them. Back in those days, you could do that. You were a king. You could give somebody money and he hires a guy named Balaam. Balaam says, for the right price, I'll put a curse on anybody. And so he pays him the money. Balaam is sent to go put a curse on the Israelite people, but God decides to interfere. So Balaam's on his donkey riding out, going to try to find these people to curse the Israelite people. And as he gets on his way, suddenly an angel of the Lord stands in front of him, but he can't see him. Who sees the angel of the Lord? Some of you know the story. The donkey, right? The donkey that Balaam's riding on sees the angel of the Lord. The angel of the Lord appears, has has the sword drawn, about to strike them down. They're in the middle of a road with two walls on it. And Balaam gets upset because the donkey won't go anywhere. And he curses him and he beats him. The angel of the Lord kind of moves off to the side. They go on for a little bit, a little further down the road. The angel of the Lord appears again and stops them. Balaam doesn't understand what's going on, gets off, hits his donkey, curses out his donkey. The angel of the Lord moves. The donkey goes on. <coughs> and then in Numbers chapter 23, started in verse 26, it says, The angel of the Lord went ahead and stood in a narrow place where there was no way to turn, either to the right or to the left. And when the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, she lay down under Balaam. And Balaam's anger was kindled. And he struck the donkey with his staff. At this point, he is fed up. He goes Old Testament on the donkey. Right. Verse 28. Then the Lord opened the mouth of the donkey and she said to Balaam, H- who's she? Okay, just making sure we're there, right? What have I done to you that you have struck me these three times? And Balaam talked back to the donkey. Now, that's the craziest thing about this whole thing, Right. And this is not a Shrek movie and donkey's not there, all right? This is a real live donkey. We saw, we read a nativity kind of thing last night, saw a real live donkey. If it started talking to me, I'm not going to naturally just talk back. And Balaam said, because you made a fool of me. I wish I had a sword in my hand. I'd kill you right now. Just imagining this conversation between Balaam and a donkey. And then verse 30 says, and the donkey replies to Balaam. And I love this. It almost it almost sounds like this is like a. if you just took the dialogue out, it'd be like a friendship movie. Am I not your donkey? On which you have ridden all your life long to this day. Is it my habit to treat you this way? And Balaam downcast says, no, that's probably how you've read that in the past, right? That's what happens. And God opens Balaam's eyes and he looks up and he sees the angel. Balaam realizes the donkey has saved his life. And instead of putting a cursing, he puts a blessing and he says, A star will come out of Jacob and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. Meaning that the Lord would bring one to rule over the entire world out of this little place. And for whatever reason, these wise men were looking for that star. And it appears. But to get to Jesus, they don't have all the answers. So they first go to the guy that's ruling the area, a guy named Herod. And I don't know how much you know about Herod, but he is notorious as one of the worst rulers in the history of the world. He... He lived a lifestyle that was just ridiculous. In fact, there was this desert kind of hanging where David uh, hid from um, Saul when he was running from Saul. And um, it was called Masada. And it was just this little outcropping in the hills. And, and Herod wanted to be so much better than David that he went to the place that David was supposed to kind of hide in the outcroppings. And he built a palace in the desert. He built an immense fortress there. He figured out he was so concerned about his about eating and making sure he was taken care of they figured a way to pay, pack and preserve dates and figs that would last for years in fact, in the 1940s now just think about this all right Jesus was born um, I know th- th- this is another thing to blow your mind, but it was born around four or five b c so four or five years before Christ, Jesus was born they got the calendar messed up when they did the calendar all right. So in 1940s, some archaeologists are excavating Herod's storage room and they found some figs and dates still preserved. And they ate them. I don't know if it's true or not if they then ask where Herod's uh, restroom was. But they ate. 1940s, he was paranoid. Herod had his wife killed one time because he was afraid she was plotting to overthrow him. He had all three sons of his son killed because he thought they were plotting to overthrow him. When he was inaugurated as king, he invited a bunch of the enemies there to say it's a peace celebration. I'm king now. All our tribal differences are over. We're going to unite under one banner. And when they all got there, he ambushed them and had them killed. It was said by the emperor Augustus that it was better to be Herod's pig than one of his sons. He would dress up like a commoner and go out into the community. And while he was out in the community, if he heard someone say something bad about him, he would go back and tell his squad who would go out and kill them. And perhaps the craziest thing that he did was on his deathbed, as he's getting ready to die, he calls in many of the noblemen that were around and he has them all killed at the moment he dies. Because he wanted the entire country to mourn his death and he thought no one would care if he died, so he wanted to give them something to care about. It's a, the dude is nuts, right? And so when the wise men show up to Herod and say, Where is this king? <laughs> Herod's thinking, what are, you, what, are you, what are you talking about? I'm the king. But there's been a king born? Look at verse 4, if you've got it open up here on the screen. An assembling. All of the chief priests and scribes of the people he inquired of them where Christ was to be born. And this is an amazing part. And they told him in Bethlehem of Judea, for it is written in the prophet. This is in case you wonder, Micah chapter five, verse two. Oh, you Bethlehem in the land of Judah are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Now, you, if I was reading this, I would expect the next verse to be, and then the scribes and those that were in the know about the law asked the wise men if they could tag along, and they all went to confirm whether the Messiah had finally been born in Bethlehem. Is that what they do? No. They don't do anything. Nothing. <clears throat> verse 7 says this. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what the star Had appeared at what time. And he sent them to Bethlehem saying go and search diligently for the child. And when you found him bring me word that I may too come and worship him. I I imagine this scene almost with Herod with that maniacal laugh happening as they walked out. Because does he want to worship him? No. We know the rest of the story most of us. Verse 9. After listening to the king they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen, when it rose, went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. We'll talk about those next week. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country another way three things i want you to see right off the bat from this passage of scripture because here's what i here's what i believe this sounds like a cute story it sounds like a really neat story these people come from a different place and they come and it's probably kings or at least in the royal (coughs) ruling class and they bow down in front of the child but but matthew doesn't matthew isn't putting this story in here for us to go Oh man, that's really cool or even to For us to have extra figurines at our nativity set. And there's a reason that Matthew put this in here. And I think there are three really important reasons that Matthew put it in here. And then something else we can learn from it. And the first reason that Matthew put it in here is. He wants from the very beginning his audience to know that the gospel is for the nations. Each of the four gospels. What are the four gospels? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Right? Each of those four gospels are written to specific groups of people. We don't have time to go into all of that, but Matthew was written specifically for a Jewish And so Matthew spends all kinds of time talking about the prophecies of the Old Testament and how Jesus is the Jewish Messiah. He is explaining to them, Jews around the world, that this is your king, this is your Messiah. But interestingly, in Matthew, now I know Luke, we have the shepherds, but in Matthew, the very first people who come to worship Jesus are pagan wise men. That's no accident. That's not an accident on Matthew's part. If you think about it, Matthew's gospel begins with the birth of Jesus and the pagans coming to worship Jesus when the Jews missed it. And how does Matthew's gospel end? And therefore, go into all the world, to every nation, teaching them. So you begin with them coming to Jesus and you end with him telling us to go and tell. It's almost that he bookends his gospel with this focus On the nations. In fact, the core message of Jesus is that He has come for the nations. Jesus was not a Jewish Savior, He is not an American Savior, He is the only Savior. And the only hope that we have in this world for the forgiveness of sins and for eternity with God is Jesus Christ alone. There is no other name under heaven by which men might be saved except the name. Of Jesus. And our task is not complete until every person on the face of the earth has had the opportunity to respond to the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So we can't read the story of the wise men without reflecting on the fact that these are pagan seekers, searchers, non Jewish, non in the group people who are searching for a Savior. Right now, there are over 6,000 people groups in the world who have never heard of the gospel of Jesus Christ. (coughs) Today, there are somewhere around 1.5 billion people who have no access to the gospel of Jesus Christ. There's somewhere around 3 billion that have very little access to it, if any. So in America, it's real easy to play church and even at Christmas time to do our cantatas and to do our Christmas Eve services and really focus on giving gifts to one another. But that's not why he came. He came to save the world. So I don't want to be content playing church when there are billions that have never heard. I mean, what we get to do in a few minutes where we're going to... You're going to bring actually at the end of the service today. There's going to be a time of response. And you've come prepared for Lottie Moon to give. Um, I'm, I'm excited. I want you to do that. If you haven't come prepared to give, you can do that some other time or you can prepare right now and give. There are envelopes even in the pews in front of you. But we're going to lay them on the altar as a symbol of us giving to the Lord whatever we can to say, take it to the nations and use it. When I think about God's plan for the nations, it always makes me think, what am I doing with my life? There are wise men in every people group, in every one of them on the face of this earth, that are looking for truth. Some of them are even searching the stars like these men. Some of them are searching in religions that are void of any meaning and we have to go tell and you may not be called to go overseas. The truth is not everyone is called to go overseas to take the gospel to Jesus Christ. I will say this and I've said this before. I think a lot more people in the American church are called to go overseas than are going overseas because there are too many that haven't heard for us just to huddle together here. Matthew begins his gospel saying, come and see. And he ends it by saying, go and tell The gospel. It's for the nations. Here's the same thing we see about these wise men, and that is that God commandeers the universe to accomplish his purpose. And that's big words there. Commandeers, right? It just means he moves the universe to accomplish his purpose. We talked about this um, when we talked about Joseph and Mary going to Bethlehem, and that God moved them to Bethlehem. Moved them to Bethlehem. And he did that through attacks of the entire Roman world, which seems ridiculous that he didn't just whisper into Joseph here, hey, go to Bethlehem. Instead, he moves governments to do it. Then in this instance, what we see is that God... wants pagan sorcerers to know that He is there and that Jesus is alive so much that He commandeers, that He corrals, that He gets together the constellations to bring that light to that specific point in history for them to see. He controls the heavens. He speaks through donkeys. He manipulates governments. There is not one square inch on the face of the earth that God does not control. Psalm says that he'll even make the unrighteous wrath of man bring praise to him. That everything in the universe is under the control and is moving to give glory and praise and honor to God. One of my favorite uh, stories, fantasies is... Um, the Hobbit and the Lord of the Rings trilogy. I love the writing there, and J.R.R. Tolkien, who wrote that, was a sincere Christian who actually led C.S. Lewis to Christ. Can you imagine? That's your. That's what you get to do. You get to lead one of the greatest Christian writers of all time to to Christ. And in his books, if you've ever read those books, um, nature plays a huge role. So in the the Fellowship of the Ring, without getting too geeky on y'all, right? There are ints that are trees that that fight. There are um, the they are always, um, in times of trouble, natural kind of uh, nature stuff coming in. For instance, one of the characters that he uses a lot to rescue them out of situations are eagles that fly in and, and take them. And, and I asked Tolkien, why do you use so much natural kind of stuff? Why not human heroes? And he said that he wanted to show that God commandeers every element of the universe to accomplish his purposes. Psalm 46 says, be still and know that I'm God and I will be exalted among the nations. There's a time in our lives to just be still and reflect on the fact that God is going to accomplish his purposes. It's not dependent on anybody or anything. He is going to do and finish this world as he sees fit. As a believer, it also is comforting to know that God is. Is not above sovereignly arranging every aspect of the universe to accommodate something that he desires to get done. All things work together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. God commandeers the universe to accomplish his purposes. Here's the, the third one The wisdom of the world has been turned upside down. Quick question What, what do we call these guys? Wise men, right? What were these wise men? Why were they wise? Because they were really good at what? What was they good at? What were they doing? Astrology. Okay? Now, now just think about that for a minute. If you were to have uh, a TV show this week and they said, we've got the four smartest people on the face of the earth right now, here they are, all astrologers. Now, how many people would go, oh, exactly, that's who we want to follow. We don't believe those are wise people anymore. What do we think of? Some of you are like, you mean that's not true? That horoscope stuff's not true? No, it's not, all right? What what do we think of people that are astrologers and claim that's how life is ruled? Strange, weird, kooks. I'm sorry if I offended any of you out there, right? Right? I mean, I don't know if you remember this, but in the 80s, we had this president named Ronald Reagan. Anybody remember that, right? Ronald Reagan and his wife, Nancy, it was rumored, was into astrology, and everybody thought she was nuts, all right? They made fun of it on Saturday Night Live because she was into astrology. Well, here's the thing. In their day and time, that was the top-line wisdom. In our day and time, they're nuts. The wisdom of man is dated. It kind of comes and goes. What was really cool 20 years ago is not very cool now, or it may be cool again, but it won't be cool soon. I just wear the same style of clothes. I figure I'm in style every 10 to 15 years, right? It's dated. It's also inadequate. You know what I love? One of my favorite things that's kind of a detail that gets left out of this story is the wise men see the star. They travel hundreds of miles to get to the place where they're going to ask about it. But what do they have to have to get all the way to Jesus? What do they have to have? They have to go and they ask. And then what do the people look into to find out where Jesus will be? The Bible, right? Hey, scribes, where does it say? Well, it says in Scripture in Micah that he'll be born here. So it's only a little bit. They need God's wisdom to fill in what's there. And here's the thing, too. We see that the wisdom of the world is narrow and exclusive. These are the smart ones. And if you're smart and highly educated, you're in. But if you're not, you're out. When you think about Matthew, you think about Luke, the first people to worship Jesus in both are wise men, the best of the best, the top of the top, and the shepherds, the lowest of the low, the outcast. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the most inclusive worldview that has ever been put forward. (coughs) It brings together races, rich, poor, educated, ignorant, righteous, unrighteous. I'm not going to ask you to identify which one of those you are. All right. We're all here. In Christ, the Jewish Pharisee, pagan philosopher, king, shepherd, prostitute, sit down on a regular basis because their acceptance is not found in who they are, but in what Christ is done and who he is. The gospel turns the world values upside down because it's based on grace, not on merit. And here's the rest of the story, and then we're done. Now, when they had departed, behold... An angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and he took the child and his mother by night and departed. Isn't that just amazing? Hey, Joseph moved to Egypt. Okay, I'm gone. And remained there until the death of Herod. And this was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet Out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious what does Herod do when he's furious? He sins and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in that region who were two years old or under. We know that it's been less than two years because of that, but it may have been a year, year and a half before they got there. According to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men, then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children, and she refused to be comforted because they are no more. Here's the last thing I want you to see in this whole passage, and then we're done. Jesus is God's answer to senseless evil and pain. This story ends in horrible tragedy. Herod realizes the wise men aren't coming back. He realizes that they think a king's been born. They've somehow recognized this king. That means other people are going to have known that this king was recognized somehow in some way in that place. And he gets very nervous and decides the only way to take care of it is to kill all the babies. Now, if you've ever wondered, um, we, we talked about this as a staffer reading a book right now called um, The First Days of Jesus. And one of the things you always wonder is, man, what that had to be terrible. It had to be hundreds, thousands of babies. What you have to realize is that Bethlehem was very rural and very small. And so there would only have been about 10, 15, or 20 babies that would have fallen into that. Still a horrible tragedy. But history books don't necessarily record it because it wasn't... Hundreds. It's hard to imagine anything worse for those families. And yet in the midst of tragedy, Matthew quotes two verses that talk about hope. Matthew 2.15 quotes a reference from Exodus that out of Egypt I have called my son, in which God took the brutal slavery of the Egyptians and brought his people out of it. And then in Matthew 2.18, a voice was heard in Ramah weeping and loud, and Rachel weeping for her children, She refused to be comforted. A quote from Jeremiah 31, 15, in which Jeremiah offers hope to children of Israel. They've been taken into exile. You see, after God had taken his people to the promised land, Israel persisted in their sin. And then he took them to exile. And between 400 and 500 and 400 B.C., the Babylonians attacked Jerusalem, destroyed the city, everything about it. And took all of them captive and took them out to this northern city called Ramah. From there, the families were told into slavery and families were torn apart. Imagine the pain of seeing your family torn from you. Some sold into slavery, one to one person, one to another. Some killed. You never see them again. And yet in the middle of that passage, shortly after what he says there in verse 15, he says in verse 16. One day your voice will cease its weeping and your eyes will cease from its tears. For your children shall come back from the land of the enemy. There is hope for your future, declares the Lord Matthew is showing you that the ultimate exodus is Jesus dying on the cross and being raised from the grave, that the chains will be broken from our bondage and that we can trust in him, even in the most difficult situations that you can have found. The king is born. One that will conquer death. Not cause it over the last four or five weeks. It seems like our televisions have been filled with example after example when human being has decided to take the lives of others.